Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that there's always tomorrow Welcome to The Jump Around, my women's basketball podcast I'm Blake Dudonis If you've listened before or you're a subscriber and are a regular listener, then you know that I like to take a fun, lighthearted approach and get to know people and get into their backstories. Today, though, we're going to take a pivot and address something that, unfortunately, is extremely prevalent. I'm going to be talking to Jessica Luther, who's a freelance journalist and an author. If you don't know Jessica's name, you certainly are familiar with her work. She was part of the team that broke that Baylor football rape case several years ago, was also a part of the team that broke the Dallas Mavericks sexual assault and harassment issues as well. She's written a book about it. She's really become one of the main people at the forefront of this battle. So we're going to talk to her about the Baylor stuff, but we're also going to talk about Urban Meyer, Ohio State, and everything in between. Uh, Again, if you're used to the lightheartedness, this one's not for you, but we're going to talk about something that is extremely prevalent and, uh, and Jessica is as big of an expert as we know. So I'm going to step away and give Jessica a call. This is a jump around. And we are back on the jump around and joining me is Jessica Luther. She's a graduate of Florida State University, author of Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. She's actually working on her second book right now with ESPNW's Kavitha Davidson, uh, which is titled How to Love Sports When They Don't Love You Back. And Jessica, thank you so much uh, for taking the time this morning to join me. And, you know, we were talking right before we hopped on. It's just this topic of uh, rape, sexual assault, misconduct in sports, uh, male sports specifically is just, it's so prevalent. And it almost seems like every single day you turn on the TV and, and you're wondering, all right, what's, you know, who's it going to be? What's it going to be now? Um, for people that don't know, you were back a part of breaking that big Baylor football case. And that kind of seems like it was ground zero to all of this. I don't know. Is that, do you feel that way as well? Yeah, that's, it's so hard to gauge from the inside. It's really strange to break a big national story that continues to unfold and still continues to unfold three years later. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was pre me too, which I feel like we always have to talk now pre and post me too. Um, and it was a big deal and people talked about it for a long time and there were actual consequences for people involved. So yeah, I mean, I do think it was, part of the national conversation that does I, I hope have some kind of effect on the one that we're still having yeah well you, I mentioned you went to Florida State so back when Jameis Winston was the quarterback there I know you that was kind of where you had to come to grips with it like oh this affects me and a school I went to this kind of like that that one hits home a little bit harder so I was wondering if you could kind of take me through you know, that whole process and how that affected you, you know, looking forward to today. Yeah, sure. So the thing I always say about Florida State is that it was a generational fandom for me. Both of my parents went there. 
Um, my dad in particular is still um, a very loyal and dedicated Florida State football fan and raised me that way. I, I think the first line of my book are that I bleed garnet and gold. Um, and I only applied to go to one school. I My dream for my college experience was to watch Florida State football games, and I was there when it was great. We were great, and we won the national championship in 2000, and I got to go to the Sugar Bowl game where we beat the Virginia Tech Hokies for that national championship, um, and that was all wonderful. And, yeah, and so, you know, in 2000, when was that? When was that? 2013, um, when it came out that – Jameis Winston um, had been under investigation for sexual assault for 11 months. It came out 11 months late. Uh, that was November of 2013. Uh, yeah, there was a lot of reckoning. The first real writing that I did on this subject was about Florida State and about that case and about trying to make sense of it for myself as a fan and as someone who cares about this topic and survivors of gendered violence and all that sort of stuff. I, I wrote a piece for Sports on Earth right before the national championship, which we went on to win in early 2014, about my conflicted fandom and whether or not I was going to cheer. And, you know, it's been years. It's been about five years that I've been reporting on this topic, and I don't watch college football anymore, and I'm not in the team. I turned on the game this past weekend for a little bit, I still have it a little bit in me, but I just don't have the emotional attachment anymore. Um, I'm sort of ruined on it, I guess. Uh, so that's where I am now. It's so interesting because even as recent as last week, Michelle Beadle uh, came out and made comments about how he, she's done with football too. She's done with college football because she, as a woman, feels marginalized and feels like clearly, you know, we as women are not. Uh, you don't care. And that's kind of what she was saying on, on get up. And, um, for you who have been so involved in this, is this, and and I realize pretty much every question I'm going to ask you is, is a a loaded question and a tough one, but is, and you broke the, the Dallas Maverick story too, if people remember that not long ago. So it's not just a football thing, but is this a, are these university and, and franchise specific things, or is this just a tack, a toxic, masculinity sports thing in general well i think it's uh, i mean it's super complicated right yeah, yeah, um yeah. and part of it is that there is this specific kind of masculinity um within football but within sport in general um but football is a violent sport it is an incredibly physically tough sport it is a team sport um so there is a type of masculinity that I think we should always be questioning. I just wrote a piece for HuffPo about this around the Ohio State case. Um, and there are people doing work around this that want to change how masculinity is talked about within football. So it's not so narrow all the time. So it's not so much predicated on, um, you know, that you're weak if you're feminine, um, that, that type of thing. I do think, I mean, part of, I totally understand what Michelle Michelle's point about football. For me, it's bigger than that. Um, I I have trouble with the entire system of of college sport in general, but college football in particular. Um, I think we should be paying players. 
I worry so much about their mental and physical health, especially once they leave school and they don't have the support system that exists at a university. Uh, you know, I don't like all the money that these coaches are making when they're supposed to be educators, like in theory, they're supposed to be mm-hmm. educators, they work for a school. Um, and then on top of that, this issue of how gendered violence is often, it's not that I even think that there's more of it in, in college sports. There are arguments, people make that argument that we see more of it there. But I don't even know if I necessarily believe that. I just think it gets in the way of the machine of college football and therefore has to be ignored or actively pushed down, um, made to go away. And so part of the reason that I don't watch the game anymore is, and I, because I'm a bummer to watch it with, I have this sort of <laughs> sad encyclopedia of cases that, you know, I watch a game and I'm just thinking about, oh, that case. And a lot of it's around coaches. We, we often, you know, we're, that conversation has shifted, I think, a little bit. It used to be like we only talked about the players yeah. themselves. Um, but we're now talking more about these histories that these coaches have within their different programs as they move around. Um, uh, again, Urban Meyer at Ohio State is like the perfect example right now. But um, and so that I have this where like I'm, you know, I see the coach or an assistant coach or whomever, and I think, oh yeah, when he was at whatever school, that was the case. I wonder what that school's like now, um, and I just feel sad about. Yeah about the people who've been harmed and I mean that both as far as possible victims of gender violence who are pushed aside but also players themselves so the Ohio Ohio State thing I mean really relevant so if we can stay on that for a second um, Mm -hmm. something you had said back in 2016 when you were speaking at the uh, Texas Book Festival you mentioned how the NCAA oftentimes just kind of you know pushes these types of things off to someone else um, mm-hmm. I struggle sometimes because yes, that obviously happens, but I'm also like, I, I think the NCA is woefully unequipped to handle these type of things. And I, I think the NCA is actually woefully unequipped to handle most things, but, uh, I just, I don't know. So, so I guess for me, like with the Urban Meyer case, it, it, it seemed very much that even in the end, three game suspension, that really seemed like the school going, well, we don't really know what to do with this. So let's just suspend them for eh, three games. And OK, is that cool? Everybody OK with that? So, like, I guess I don't know. Mm-hmm. How do we how do we handle this? Who handles it? How you know what I mean? I, I, I'm, I'm not even asking you a very good question. You're probably just staring at me. Wondering, no, I totally you know under- what I mean? no, I totally understand what you mean. Um, you know, the Ohio State thing is so interesting to me because if you actually read the report that they released and you don't know what the outcome of it was you would probably guess that he got fired right. <laughs> like <laughs> he doesn't come off well no. in in that report which is the one they chose to release right and so there's a sort of i mean there is a head-scratching element to the three games and they didn't know what to do they didn't really want to fire him i mean no. that's clear no. and so they're doing something to look like they mm-hmm. are you care about this in, in some sort of way, I guess. Uh, but your point about the NCA is totally valid. I don't like the NCAA. I'm not going to say anything nice about that organization. I, I don't think that if they had rules about this, that they would implement or that they would actually um, enforce them in mm-hmm. any way. Uh, but the point is that the only governing body of collegiate sports is the NCAA, and. For me, 
when I read the Division One manual, it is so detailed. I mean, yeah. especially the part that I'm the most familiar with is recruitment, because I wrote a chapter about recruitment in my book. And it is like minutiae. Like, you just imagine these men, and they're almost all men, sitting around in a room deciding, like, how many minutes a coach is allowed <laughs> to call a player on any given week during a certain period of time. Like, yeah. the the detail to which they have discussed how this is going to work to the point that it made it all the way in as a rule in the manual. And yet there's literally nothing about how to manage this particular issue Mm. with like that. They don't even care enough to spend the time to do that. And that it's just service every time someone brings it up to me, that's more what I'm getting at. I agree with you. I don't, I don't think that, we just don't have any system. I think this is part of what we're having a like overall cultural cultural reckoning with this right now. Um, and if you really, if you talk to almost any survivor, this isn't, of course, there's no one story when it comes to sur- surviving gendered violence. But many, I guess, many survivors don't feel comfortable reporting to the authorities, into the criminal justice system. Um, you know, I deal a lot with university settings and students don't feel comfortable reporting to the university. Um, you know, the idea that there's just no system really in place um, to manage this particular issue within our society. We haven't even figured that out yet. Um, so I don't think the NCA is going to, like, magically um, do it and be good at it. I just want people to pay attention to what actually gets attention and care and thought and what does not, and that's that's more my point around that. Um, And I don't know, so like, I mean, really, who should have handled Ohio State is the, do they have a board of regents? I can't remember, all schools are different. Um, Whoever met that day for 10 hours to decide, um, they they should have probably made a different decision, I guess, based on the report that they chose to release. Um, But I mean, again, we're just talking about, I assume probably just a bunch of, men in the room yeah well deciding and, and to that point I, I don't recall what the uh, like you I don't recall what the you know technical term of them were but I believe it was 10 10 people and three or four of them were people who work at Ohio State so I mean right. you want to talk about the definition of 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 you know mixed mixed up things like how 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 is that supposed to work <laughs> yeah and it's so complicated money is such a huge thing um the way that it gets in the way of all the decision-making. Yeah. I always talk about how these college football coaches are often, you know, there is a hierarchy. Universities are incredibly hierarchical. Um, the president's supposed to be at the top and at most schools, but if you do it based on money, most of the time it's going to be the college football and college basketball coach who's at the top, the yeah. power pyramid. And, and yeah, and so, you know, it's, and I always use it's complicated. Um, you know, sometimes you get these people at these universities. I will give credit to a lot of, there are diehard Baylor fans who still don't, don't like Dan Solomon and I, the guy that I wrote that first piece with. Um, but overall, like, there was a feeling in the community that, like, they were mainly just very upset that this had happened. Yeah. And they wanted to fix it. Um, that's true at Michigan State. I'm sure that's true at Ohio State. Um, you never really know, but it's, but anyone going into that room isn't just making moral decisions. They're also making financial ones. And, um, 
and all those all of that becomes very very messy and like sadly money often wins when we when yeah. things are at odds sure when you look into these stories and not just we'll, we'll you know these are kind of the top level of you know messed up things happening but like if we even take a step back to say um, the UNC football players, you know, selling shoes and mm-hmm. being suspended for four games. It, it seems to me that most of these stories that are coming out more frequently, they are the big ones, right? They're they're the big fishes, the Ohio States, the Michigan States, the UNCs. And again, you've mentioned it before at, at some of your speaking engagements, like this stuff happens at D3 levels as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Are these stories that are getting broken like Ohio State for you as a, as a journalist, is it in an attempt to, you know, help kind of break down this, this run of stuff? Is it because these are the top fish that you, you know, that are are being targeted? Uh, Is it because it makes a bigger impact when it's Ohio state as opposed to Ohio Wesleyan? You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think so as a journalist who has reported on this topic for about five years, when the Weinstein story broke, Harvey Weinstein and sort of the kickoff of the current Me Too mm-hmm. that we're that we're in, there were so many people that were surprised that it took so long, right? Like once they found out that yeah. journalists had known about Weinstein and some version of that story for like over a decade, right? Yep. Decades. Um, they were shocked to learn that, that no one had really published a comprehensive piece about it. But it's difficult. It's really, really hard to publish on this topic. All the things, all the questioning of people who come forward, that level of intense scrutiny, I mean, it's hard to get people to, on the record, they're terrified of it. And the same reason that they're terrified to report to authorities, Mm -hmm. um, editors are nervous about, you know, publishing it and, and, you know, the blowback, but also possibly the legal ramifications. and there's just a general feeling in our society where we we tend to disbelieve before we believe, and that's a big hurdle to overcome. And so, part of it is you. The story does have to, in some way, be big enough to sort of overcome those things, mm, right? Sure. Um, and often, yeah. So, an Ohio State story, like you like you just said, is often going to be an easier. This sounds super cynical, and I. Sorry for that, but it's an easier sell um, to an editor than sure. a small D3 school sure. would be. And so if it's going to be a D3 school, you're going to have to have, sadly, probably some kind of sensational aspect to it. And, I mean, I hate that part of this work. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'm trying to put a story somewhere and the editor wants to know why, and I'm like, because it's a normal story. Like, this is a <laughs> normal story, and we should be telling the story that a lot of people are going to read and they're going to see themselves in it rather than some sort of juicy thing that is titillating rather than, than any, you know, more than anything else. Um, but it's really hard to, to sell. I mean, oh, man, as we've seen with me, too, like, this is a really, like, ubiquity of this problem is, is, a, is a thing. And so there are so many stories to tell. So, yeah, it certainly helps when you know that every Ohio State fan is going to read this and be mad and talk about it, and the story will go on and on and on. Um, and so that's part of it, but part of it too, is that people do report on all the other stuff, the smaller stuff, it just didn't get picked up. Yeah. And I just want to like major kudos to folk reporters 
I, I'm very fearful of like the loss of local newspapers because those people yeah. often are doing that kind of diligent work about the local community, the smaller schools, you know, places like that, and it just never hits the national radar um, because, again, there isn't a national audience for it because it's a small school, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, it's, you know, that work does get done. Um, we just don't necessarily see it all the time if it's done on the local level. Sure. Um, um, for you, as someone who is so firmly immersed in this, um, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes it, it to me, it's you can almost go numb to all this, right? Because it just, again, it's just mm-hmm. another part of the news cycle. It's just, oh, okay, Ohio State, yep. And next week, it's you know going to be whoever else. And even as I was preparing to talk to you, I was just kind of looking around, and I stumbled on your BuzzFeed article from last year. The some days the bomb goes off, the ballerina who accused her instructor mm-hmm. of sexual assault, and I started crying. I mean, it was. Truly, like, I don't know, because, again, I, I do see this stuff, and you know how bad it is, but, again, it just kind of seems like, okay, another one. But then you read something like that, and for whatever reason, it, it, it hit me in a different way, and I go, well, holy crap, you know? Um, so I don't know, for you who's writing it and hearing these stories and talking and thinking about it daily, do you struggle with that at all? Oh, yeah. So the first time I worked with a survivor to tell their story was in September, October of 2014, we published in December 2014, and that was the first time working on that, and I, I struggle with my own issues of specifically anxiety, but sometimes that'll tip into depression, so like, that's something that I personally struggle with, but then when I was working on this piece in 2014, that was the first time that multiple people in my life said to me, do you know what secondary trauma is, and, mm. and that's something that I've been dealing with ever since, which is you do start to take on, like, you start to react emotionally and sometimes physically to taking in other people's trauma over and over again. So when you work on one of these stories, you not only, so for the ballerina story, I had, by the time I went to write it, I had to do like 15 or 16 hours of audio from both her and her family, but I'd also gone there yeah. and, and visited them and I had been with them for a few days and, uh, and so you often, you know, and then on top of that, especially with university cases, like I will read the transcripts over and over again. So you're just reading about the violence and the impact of it over and over and over again. And yeah, and that absolutely has a um, effect on me. And I am still dealing, I've gotten a lot better about it in part because I can just recognize it now. Yeah. I can recognize when I read something, I will think, oh, this is going to do it. I'm not going to be able to work for the next probably like sometimes it takes me maybe two days to get over um a really upsetting uh case file or something like that or i'll be interviewing someone and as they're talking i'll think okay i'm gonna have to take a break (laughs) for a couple days um to to process this i have a therapist i'm very fortunate that i can afford to go to a therapist that i found one who uh works really well with me um and you know at some point um I just have to, uh, I just try very, very hard to remember all the people who tell me that the work matters to them, because there's certainly times where it gets very hard, and I just think, I don't want to ever, I don't want to know any more stories, um, and one of my big coping techniques now is that I actually don't read the details of many stories anymore. I used to, like, keep up with all of any breaking story, I'd go and read about it, um, huh. and now, unless I'm going to talk specifically about it, and I... I always, if I'm going to talk about it, 
uh, on a podcast, a radio show, go on TV, uh, talk about it in front of an audience, something like that, I will make sure that I have read and I have, you know, I know the mm-hmm. details. I want to be, um, I never want to, uh, <laughs> what's the right word? I don't, I don't want to phone that in. Like, I, I want yeah. to give it the care that it deserves. Every case deserves that if you're going to talk about it. But um, otherwise, I won't, I won't look into it. So hmm. I, will, I will try not to take in more uh, details about gendered violence than I have to for the job. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And, and kind of as we wrap this up, too, I know it's probably nice to get away. And I know you spent some time uh, around a, a pretty fun baseball event recently as mm-hmm. well. Um, will you tell us a little bit about this? Because this is a world I le- legitimately just got introduced to within the last week or two that I didn't even know knew really existed. Yeah, a lot of people don't. And it, um, I want to like, give credit to Huff- Huffington Post for sending me to the Women's Baseball World Cup. Uh, it was in Vieira, Florida, which is right near where I grew up. So I actually got to see my parents when I went. But it was the eighth time that they've done it. They do it every other year. Um, there were 12 teams that participated from around the world. And Japan won. It's the sixth of the eight that they've put on. This is the sixth one that Japan has won in a row. Um, so women's baseball, girls in baseball, it is not um, – it is still a small sport because mm-hmm. – around the world girls are pushed into softball um because softball is an olympic sport yeah and uh i just like to tell people like when little league was in the in the states little league was sued that was the only reason that they ever let girls in and as soon as they were forced legally to let girls in they created little league softball funny how they had a place to push the girls um but it's becoming a bigger deal and Japan actually has a professional women's league, uh, the only one in the world. And so I wrote a feature for Huffington Post before, or like it came out right in the middle of the World Cup about why Japan is so good at baseball, why the U.S. isn't. And um, the, the U.S. didn't medal. They came in fourth. Uh, and it, it was Japan, Chinese Taipei, which is Taiwan, and then Canada got the bronze. And Chinese Taipei has three women to play in the Japanese women's baseball league. So um, they just have a different infrastructure that seems to really help them. Um, and Ayami Sato is a pitcher from Japan. She's the best women's baseball player in the world, and she is phenomenal. Uh, she really pitch. And the, the games are really fun. They're super competitive. And it was just really a blast to get to go and watch that. And, and you're right, it's always nice to get to do that kind of stuff, take a break from... <laughs> The, the normal beat that I'm on. Um, but, yeah, people should check it out. There are there won't be another one for two years. They don't know where it's going to be. Uh, probably in Japan, um, but they haven't decided that yet. But women's baseball, it is a thing. It's a real thing, and there are national teams, and they are fun. Well, if people want to check that out, they can go uh, on your Twitter. I know your work's up there, Jessica W. Luther. Uh, also, your website, Jessica W. Luther. Dot com for more of your stuff so uh jessica really appreciate you uh the work you've done and you continue to do and i certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk about it with me today yeah thanks for having me big thanks again to jessica luther for joining me today and talking about this relevant and heavy topic again if you want to check out jessica's work she's on twitter at jessica w luther L-U-T-H-E-R 
Also our website, JessicaWLuther.com. Jessica's also a uh, co-host of a feminist sports podcast called Burn It All Down. Uh, if you haven't checked that out before, I'd encourage you to. It's, it's a very unique podcast and one that I find very enjoyable. So thanks again to Jessica. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. Uh, if you haven't yet, you can subscribe and get episodes as soon as they drop. And if you would rate us on iTunes, that would certainly help. As always, this is Blake Dudonis with a jump around. Until next time.